0: Hi everyone and welcome to a very special Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. This week's episode was originally a special live episode with Jericho Writers and they're offering a discount for listeners. Jericho Writers is a writing community with a difference. Their members are at the heart of everything they do and their absolute favourite thing to do is to celebrate each member's success whether that's writing another chapter or getting that book deal. Jericho Writers offers everything you need to help you write, edit and get your book published. From tutored video courses, online and in-person events, one-to-one mentoring, live masterclasses and expert editorial services, to interviews with publishers, agents and authors, they're with you for every word. Jericho Writers are offering listeners of this podcast a very special discount. Use the code PODCAST15 for 15% off annual membership. In this episode, I'm talking to Rose Wilding about her psychological suspense novel, Speak of the Devil. Rose is a queer, working-class writer from Newcastle upon Tyne. She has an MA in Creative Writing from the University of Manchester, where she was mentored by Jeanette Winterson. In this episode, we discuss why a writing workshop made her want to behead a fictional man, breaking all the writing rules by having eight points of view, and how Rose's ADHD diagnosis changed how she approached writing. But first, here's Rose with an excerpt from Speak of the Devil.
1: Fireworks pop and fizzle in the dark sky above the city, hours before the new millennium. And Maureen watches for a second before she pushes the window open and closes the curtains. Sarah has already lit the candles and hands her one as she sits back down. Eight faces are illuminated, ghastly and sunken eyed in the flickering light. Seven women sit in a semicircle, their bodies pointing towards a kind of altar in the middle of the room. They all look at him, some of them just glancing now and then, some of them staring unable to avert their gaze. Only one of them knew he would be here. The others are in varying states of horror at the sight of him. Even the one who brought him is horrified, maybe more so than the rest. A woman called Anna gets up and kneels in front of him. She hasn't prayed for years, not since she was fresh from Brazil, but the words slip out of her mouth as if they have been waiting for her. The Portuguese fast and slick almost inaudible, over the noise of the party below. Sarah lights a cigarette with the flame of her candle. I think it's a bit late for that, she says to Anna, but does not get a response. Sarah leans back in her chair and crosses her knees, looks around at the other women, but no one pays her any attention. Keisha Jackson, the journalist, lurches out of her seat and into the ensuite, where they all hear a wretch and a splatter. She comes back a few minutes later, pale, splashes of vomit down her jumper. Sarah takes her hand and their fingers lace together, brown skin and white, almost indistinguishable in the gloom. Josie, who is the youngest and is pregnant, is crying. Her pallid face is blotchy and swollen. Where's the rest of it? She asks, a voice cracking. We don't know him. Maureen says, reaching across to lay a hand on Josie's arm. Someone does, Sarah says, flicking a finished cigarette onto the floor and grinding it into the carpet with a boot. She looks at him again, meeting his eyes. It's been a long time since she saw him, even longer since they are in this room together. He looks different now and she feels different now. She loved him then, His hair is longer than it was, and it's standing on end as if he's been dragged by it. She supposes that he might have been. His face looks thinner than it did, and his nose looks flat and broken, and dried blood is smeared over the bottom half of his face. She imagines how it must have burst from his mouth, maybe as he tried to say one last clever thing. He was always clean-shaven when she knew him, but he has a short beard now, thick around the mouth and chin, petering out down his throat and stopping abruptly where his neck does. The rest of him is missing. Rose, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the live podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here.
0: But Rose, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about Speak of the Devil. Tell us what it's about.
1: So Speak of the Devil is on the surface a murder mystery and we start off with a man's severed head and seven angry women who are all suspects and a detective uh, who is a bit hapless but just trying to solve the case but I think beneath the surface it's the book is just about women and women's relationships with each other and with men and with each other in the shadow of men Um, and how women betray each other and how we support each other Um, and just the way that women's lives are sort of altered by the patriarchy
0: Brilliant and it is, I, I, and I'm not just saying this because we're doing any event because I did say to you before we decided we were going to do the event I hadn't read your book and we did have this discussion that what happened if I read the book and hated it and then we had to do the event together But I have to say it is, hand on heart, one of the best books I've read this year. It is so good. Well, thank you. (laughs) Where did the idea come from? Because I know that the book started from this kind of very shocking moment that you had in a writing workshop. And I'm sure many people listening tonight have done writing workshops or have been involved in writers' groups. So tell us that moment then of when this book kind of came alive for you.
1: So, yeah, I was in a writing workshop uh, while I was doing the master's degree and there was this guy in the the workshop who had submitted a piece of work in which he not only suggested but basically outright said um, that women sometimes enjoy being raped. And I was so like obviously just so shocked and so furious and nobody else in the class really called him out about it so I was really confused and I was like am I angry for nothing um so obviously I sort of was like you can't write this um but I think I was both shocked by what he had written and shocked that nobody else seemed to be disturbed by it that I just went home and I was so angry that I just remember stomping all the way home and then getting in and opening my laptop and writing just the first chapter of Speak of the Devil which has um, I always think it's largely remained the same but actually found the original printout of the original like very first version uh, and it has not stood the same at tad. It was about 80% <laughs> adjectives. So I've taken all of those out. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just went home and I was like, right, I've got to behead a man. because uh, I'm so furious. Um, and <laughs> I it wasn't agree that bad. it was
0: a fictional man that you decided to behead.
1: It's a lot less messy <laughs> and more lucrative.
0: <laughs> One thing you decided to do, which I think is incredibly brave, and I'm sure there are many creative writing teachers that would say do not do this. But you decided to have seven, seven women, um, all distinctive voices. But I think that must have been really difficult to make them all so different. But right from the off, I think you did a really clever thing in that we know Josie's pregnant, we know Sarah smokes, we know Anna's from Brazil, all in that first section, you've kind of pinpointed little memorable things about them. So did you ever think... Maybe you'd been a bit too ambitious by writing so many women. Yes, I did.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I think that that first image just sort of, that was the only clear thing about the book was that first image with. I was really determined to have these seven women um, and have them sitting around this head. And I just was like, it has to be seven. And I think I was talking to one of the other tutors on the course at one point and she was like, does it have to be seven? And I was like, look, my life would be easier if it wasn't seven, but it just has to be seven. And I think I was sort of thinking about the seven deadly sins, um, but then obviously I didn't use the seven actual deadly sins. I was sort of trying to figure out like, oh, well, what are the seven deadly sins of the patriarchy and sort of embody each one of those into one of the characters so like I was trying to think like what how does the patriarchy harm women so sort of thinking you know like pr- reproductive rights and um, uh, undermining people at work etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and so try to make each one of those a character and I was like well I could create like 10 or 20 of these women um, <laughs> actually but uh, yeah it was very difficult to write I had so I had those seven narratives and then there's Nova the detective she's got a narrative so there's sort of eight and then there's a couple of chapters like that first one where it's sort of a third person omniscient narrator so there's almost like nine separate narratives in the book which was a big headache and I cried a lot and at one point someone suggested I just write the whole thing from Nova's perspective and I just sort of scrap it and rewrite it and I was like oh my god like that would be much harder And actually, I
0: think not as good a book if you just stuck from her perspective. I think it might have maybe been a bit more of a, I guess, more of a straightforward kind of crime procedural book. But it wouldn't have been had because I think you get to know each of these women so well, even though if you think about it, because there's seven of them, we have a short time with each of them. But I think what you've done so well is that they feel so real and we get such a strong sense of their personality and their histories and, um, you know, their hopes and dreams and their fears and all the good things that make a believable character. So, yeah, I'm glad you didn't rewrite it.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that I did too, because I think that the purpose of the story, like originally it didn't even start out as a crime novel. I just wanted to tell the stories of these women and I didn't really care who had actually killed them. So Nova was a very late addition that came in sort of after I had already written half of the book. Um, So I had to go back and start again when I added Nova. Um, But yeah, so it wasn't, I was much more interested in these women and their perspectives than I was Mm -hmm. about the crime. It's just a happy accident that it's turned out to be a (laughs) crime novel. (laughs) Would you find that made the
0: book almost, because when you brought Nova and it gave it a an easier structure in a sense, because she was out there trying to solve the crime. Did it give you a bit more of a clearer way to move the story?
1: Yeah, like the first draft, a uh, sort of the first half of a draft that I did, didn't really have any structure whatsoever. It was mainly just vibes, um, because, yeah, because... There wasn't a detective or anything, it was just me being like, and this happened, and this happened. Um, so I as back... all great stories begin, <laughs> so I went back and I, th- I think I read like an Agatha Christie book, and it was like, right, I'm just going to steal your structure. Um, so Nova did make it a lot easier to sort of structure the whole book.
0: Hmm. And what about your setting right at the turn of the millennium? What made you pick? that year because I mean technically it's a historical novel as well
1: yes some girl came up to us at an event and said oh I don't really read historical fiction and I was like that was 20 years ago what do you mean historical fiction (laughs) Um, I think so I wrote there was two reasons the first one was that um, that mobile phones make everything more boring I think and too easy to... I mean, I'm sure actual detectives would vastly disagree, but it feels to me too easy to solve a crime, like just get somebody's phone and look at their texts. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have a world where we weren't so reliant on phones, but there were maybe a thing if I needed to do anything. Like there is one very important text that gets sent, um, which is useful, but otherwise nobody really is using their phone. Um, and also, I just felt like the turn of the millennium was such a big, like, it, it was like we were waiting for the world to explode Um, as soon as the clock Sort of turned to 2000, mm-hmm. and there was all this sort of drama about the millennium bug, and it just felt like the build up to something big. and I was like, a, I want to sort of use that momentum to be like, um, This is the end of the patriarchy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and also, I guess, a good distraction for your characters because when everyone's celebrating the millennium, they're in a hotel discussing this uh, beheaded, I was gonna say beheaded head, but uh, bodiless head, I suppose um let's talk a little bit then about Jamie your your head your villain your detestable character who is really a fantastic villain um simply because he's so awful and yet incredibly believable again how I mean I think that one thing that was really good about him was that yes he is horrendous but to some of your for some of your women, they have a slightly more complicated relationship with him. He's not necessarily their, their biggest enemy or the person they hate the most. Perhaps if we step back, we should give them a bit of a shake and see, you know, this is why he's so awful. But for them, they don't necessarily hate him. Can you tell us about how you kind of created Jamie's character?
1: Um. So I think he started out as being pretty heavily based on a a really awful ex-boyfriend that I had um, and I was like, this is where I get the catharsis and I had been looking for it for a while um, and then when I was sort of midway through writing it there was this, I, I used to work at Custer, Um and there was this guy that used to come in every day and it was like this sort of man in his 60s and he said his wife had died and he was quite lonely so he used to come in for a chat like every day and we all really really liked him we used to buy him birthday presents and Christmas cards and stuff um, and just thought he was this really lovely old man that we were sort of keeping company and would give sort of a free cup of tea to every now and then and then it turned out we found out via like some other customer that actually he was a paedophile and he had been sort of abusing children for 30 years and had been in prison because of it and there were sort of newspaper articles and stuff so it wasn't just like hearsay and I was just so like bewildered that I had missed that about him and I really had thought like the boyfriend that I sort of based parts of Jamie on I thought when I came out of that relationship that the only good thing that came out of that was that I would never get fooled again by an awful man and then like two years later, it felt like it had happened again. And I just felt so disappointed in myself, like that I had been fooled by him. Um, So I put a lot of that into the novel. I think a lot of that feeling of like you think that you know someone and actually like you really don't know them. And and once you find out the awful things that they've done, you see them in this whole new like light. And it's almost like you're looking into a different person's eyes. Um. And other than that, just sort of generally the sort of bad people that you hear about on the news. Um just just every every bad boyfriend, any of my friends have ever had. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's good inspiration for anyone writing wanting to write a real villain, think of all the bad boyfriends that you can, or, or your friends' bad boyfriends. One of the things that your novel begins with is a little note from you. And it's a, I thought it was a really arresting sentence. And you said, I wrote this novel because I'm always under the skin, under the polite smile, absolutely furious. I'd love if you could expand on that for us and tell us what inspires you to write, what inspires you to keep going, even on those days where you've got writer's block or you just don't feel like writing.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I do feel, it, if I let myself sit and think, about just the the way that you know women are sort of treated in society it is just so infuriating I don't I think everybody listening I'm sure understands um and just when you see on the news like at the moment um there's so much about reproductive rights being called into question and it's just so awful and I think there is just so much to be angry about um so it did feel again like quite cathartic to write that whole thing into a novel Um, so I think the rage just sort of keeps us pushing through Um, and just knowing that I think I've always sort of felt as a person like I'm not sure that I had anything to say and then when I started writing this novel I found that actually I did have like a lot to say Um, and I'm sure none of it is like things that haven't been said before but it felt nice to me to be able to sort of gather all of these thoughts in one place um and connect them with a narrative which uh was really a handy thing to be able to do um yeah so the the rage gets us through that is it pure rage
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I like what you said there about you didn't feel like you had anything to say. And I, that's something that I've always related to because I think I've always just loved books and I've loved reading. and I've loved writing. And I never really used to think about that. You know, when you pick up a book and you you just enjoy it and then you put it down and pick up another one you're not sitting there thinking now what did the author intend to say with this book and then when you start to become a writer and then people ask that question of you and to begin with you're like I don't really know I just kind of was writing what I was interested in or what was obsessing me and and I guess it's always that age-old thing that only you are able to write your novel and eventually something kind of will come out of you that you're not really expecting or you're not realising and that will be the kind of core of your novel and I know for you Rose that when you kind of left university and um, when you first left university and kind of you went you worked in Costa you weren't really writing and you kind of had given up writing and then you had a, a visit from an inspirational school teacher that kind of changed everything for you so can you tell us a little bit about that
1: yeah, so that was so lovely. Um so yeah, she was my teacher at GCSE in and A level. And uh when I was at GCSE especially, I just used to write a lot of like miserable poetry. Um because <laughs> that's what teenagers do, I suppose. They'd be writing all of these sad poems about like, Oh my mom's made us hoover the stairs today. I'd oh, like trying to write these like poems being like, well, I fancy me art teacher, but she's a girl, so I'm going to use gender neutral pronouns and nobody will ever know. Um, (laughs) And she, I had like submitted some poetry, I think for some sort of assessment. And she was like, ah, you know, you're a really good writer. You should definitely write. So sort of on the back of her um, praise, I did an English and creative writing um, degree and then yeah just stopped writing for a long time and then she just just randomly years later she came in and her and sort of said um oh hello it's you are you still writing and i was like how do you remember me but i'm not still writing no um and she was like well why you should be and i was like yeah i probably should be you're absolutely right and i think that just that little kick from her sort of spurred us and again um, and then I went and sort of started researching masters like within the next couple of days and ended up on the um, University of Manchester masters course which was great um, and now I can't find her like when I finally got my book deal I was so desperate to tell this teacher um, and I she's just like not on the internet And I've got a couple of old teachers on Facebook and none of them are still in touch with us. So I'm sort of desperately trying to be like, look, look what you made us do. So if Mrs Charlton ever hears this uh, from Hooker Gay, then I've written a book. Please uh, get in touch. (laughs) We need some
0: nationwide campaign now, I think, to track her down. Yeah. It's very sad that she doesn't get to realise how inspirational um, she was. I, I mean, I think a lot of us who are really interested in writing. I've had that one teacher who really inspired them. Mine was Mrs. Driscoll. Um she is out there, but I don't I have never got in contact because I think I was slightly embarrassed. But maybe maybe I should maybe I should one day. Um she always said to me, You write very dark things. And I was like, Yeah, I do. And that was at, I don't know, age 14. But um yeah it, I mean I, I'm so pleased that your teacher um randomly found you in Costa and inspired you because who knows you may not have ever had that push to go back and study and and then be here where you are now can you tell us a little bit more about your masters because you were mentored by Jeanette Winston was she one of your tutors there
1: yes and Kamala Shamsi so it's a very good degree to be on if you want to sort of be around these brilliant women um but yeah, it's a great degree. I think it, it, I'm really glad I ended up on that one because at first I really wanted to be at Manchester Met where Caroline Duffy teaches. Not that I particularly write poetry anymore, but um, I think when I first discovered Caroline Duffy at GCSE, that was the first time I was like, ah, oh, like I don't have to write really formally. Sort of me writing can be sort of funny and full of personality, and it's still like great writing. Um, so I was really desperate to be on that course, and they never really got back to us for a long time. So I ended up on the, um degree at the University of Manchester, and I'm very glad that I did um, because yeah, Jeanette is great, and she took a particular shine to that one chapter that I wrote, um, which I'm really surprised at now that I've reread that first version because it wasn't great. <laughs> she really has got an eye like to see something a diamond in the rough Um, (laughs) so yeah she saw that and even when I had left university I think she knew that I'm the kind of person who needs a bit of like tough love so she would email and be like I know you've left but come into my office hours so I'd like traips back in even though I had graduated and she'd sit us down and be like how's the book going and I'd be like and she'd be like write the book it's gonna be good write it finish it Um, and then I had had sort of interest from a few agents already because um, at the University of Manchester one of the great things about the master's degree is that you produce um, as a cohort you produce uh, like an anthology of everybody's work and sort of the first chapters of everyone's novels or some poetry or whatever um, and send it out to agents so even though I didn't have anywhere approaching a manuscript I had about three chapters and the vague promise I would finish it I had two or three agents that got in touch and I thought at first it was like a cruel joke from someone I was like no this can't possibly be right like nobody can be trying to get in touch with me about this Um, but they were real as it turns out and then Jeanette introduced me to um, my brilliant agent Kate Um, and as soon as I met Kate I was like oh she's the one because Carmela Shamsi had said on the course one day, your agent needs to be your literary best friend. So when you meet them, you need to think, I could be friends with you. Um, oh, don't there's the daddy-loving <laughs> <laughs> Um, Yeah, and when I first met her, I was like, oh, you're great. I could definitely be friends with you. You're the one. And as it turns out, we make a great team. So I'm very glad that Jeanette introduced us to Kate and has been such a lovely cheerleader throughout.
0: mm Did you kind of to work out whether you were compatible? Did you discuss your book? Did you discuss other books? How did you kind of get to know each other?
1: You know what? I think we talked about true crime podcasts. Um, And I had actually been, the day that I went to meet her, was in London. So I was like, oh, like, let's have a coffee or something. And I was supposed to be meeting another agent as well. And it was a Friday afternoon and he had rang in sick to work and just said, oh, I'm really sorry, I can't come in, I'm ill. Um <clears throat> And it was right at the start of COVID actually, so I think he might have had COVID as it turns out. Um But yes, so I didn't meet him that day, but I did meet Kate and then I had to go home the next day, so I couldn't stay and meet this other guy. And I think I had just clicked so well with Kate that I was just like, "Ah, oh, you're the one, I'll stick with you. mm."
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. I met my agent in a similar way, and I, I mean, I always feel kind of almost guilty that I don't know whether you feel like this, that I didn't have to do the whole kind of querying and writing all the the emails and all the kind of applications. Um, but I do think even people who I know that have gone through that, that they said they just knew when they met the right person. A bit like dating in a weird way. I'm not suggesting you date your agent, but you know, mm-hmm. I, I think there's a kind of a feeling that you get whether you think I I, I don't necessarily think you need to um, I don't think you need to be best friends with them but I think you need to have a kind of understanding that you know where you where you want your career to go and also what you want from your book it's no good you turning up with this amazing um, you know romance novel and they want to turn it into a fantasy novel or whatever the whatever the situation is I think if they understand what you're trying to do, that's, like, the most important thing. So um, I'm glad that you found your, your true agent match. That's that's great. Um, I wanted to touch back on something you said, actually, about um, Jeanette Winston kind of keep emailing you going, you know, keep going. Have you finished? Do you think you're the type of writer that needs that kind of constant prodding and, and to say, like, uh, I don't know, motivation from writing friends? Or are you quite good at kind of, just getting to the finishing line yourself because I know there must be so many people out there listening that have got like a half finished book or two books that are nearly quite finished but not quite um, what What are you like Rose?
1: So I think for me uh, it's very difficult for me to commit to doing something for myself especially if it's not an instant thing um, and because writing a book is such a massively long process, I just don't think that I ever would have finished it had it not been for sort of Jeanette checking in. And um, and then, like I said, I signed with my agent before I even had sort of half a book. And I think I had sort of, um, I, I think the pressure that knowing that someone else was waiting for me to finish it and sort of her effort would be wasted if I never bothered to finish it um, so that really worked for the first one um, and then the second one is under contract so I have to do it which is still because it's such a sort of like distant it's sort of oh there's a deadline at some point point. Um, and I can't just do the whole thing at one in one night that's been pretty difficult but um I think a lot of why I have found it so difficult is that I just find it difficult to come in and sit down at the desk and start to do it even though like it's something that I want to do it's just it just feels impossible sometimes Um, but recently I was diagnosed with ADHD um, and started taking uh, ADHD medication which has just been so life-changing and then for the first few weeks I didn't actually think it was working because it's quite subtle and you don't necessarily actually feel like massively different um but then I looked back and I was like oh god like I've sat down I've replotted plotted my whole novel I've written like 10,000 words in the last two weeks um when it used to be like a massive struggle to do 3,000 words and I've just sort of done 5,000 without even thinking about it um and I just find it a lot easier just to get myself in here and sit down in the morning in the first place so that has massively changed how I write a book and sort of how yeah well how I just manage my daily life but
0: mm.
1: yeah it's been huge for like being able to just sit down and actually be an author without because I, I find it very hard to if I don't have a manager sort of looming over us all of the time And it is quite difficult to to be like oh nobody cares if I do this today or not maybe I'll just like watch below deck instead
0: (laughs) does a deadline help because obviously you've got a deadline for book two now hovering over you is that a motivation kind of is that a motivator for you or is that are you finding that that's giving you kind of pressure that's distracting from the kind of creative process um I
1: think because it's a deadline that is just sort of One deadline that's well, it's not that far away now, but it has been quite far away for a long time. That hasn't really motivated us that much because I am very much like I'll do it on the day kind of person. And all the way through uni, I just used to write like I'd not, I wouldn't like um, prepare for to write any essays at all. And on the day it was due, I would just go to the library like seven in the morning and just like research and crack out like 3,000 words in one day Um, and still do pretty well which everybody was always angry about because I just hadn't really put in that much work Um, so my solution to me sort of not really taking deadlines seriously in my head is that I get my agent to give us a deadline every week so every Sunday I text her and I say written me three thousand words this week or i'm up to this many words so it feels like a little bit of um a little bit of responsibility has been mm. added
0: <laughs> i do a similar thing just with a friend of mine actually we message each other every monday and she will say i'm gonna write on thursday and friday this week for uh, two hours each day and i say i'm gonna write Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I'm gonna do one hour each day. And then we check in with each other the next Monday. And it was like, how did your writing go? And you always feel a bit guilty if you didn't quite manage what you said you were gonna manage. So it's that accountability thing, isn't it? So it does it does work surprisingly well, even if it's only with a, a friend or it's quite handy. Uh, I remember when I hadn't finished my novel, I remember one of my friends who's not a writer She said, I'm going to text you every Sunday and make sure you've written some words. And she did for a while, but she didn't keep it up. But luckily, it it motivated me enough to keep going. I want to touch back on a little bit to do with your ADHD diagnosis. Do you have to kind of, are there any kind of uh, ways that you kind of motivate yourself with your ADHD in mind? set up a particular routine or um I don't know kind of make sure that you're sticking to the same sort of schedule how do you kind of best improve your kind of situation to help your your brain settle into writing
1: so again that's changed so before I had the diagnosis uh, and drugs I knew that I would work best on a morning and if I got up like pretty early and felt like I had started my day early I was going to be more productive all day so I would come into the office as early as possible especially if no one else is up I can just come in and sort of crack out my words for the day before anybody else is even awake so that's great Um, but since, um, since I've started the drugs It doesn't really matter like when I come into the office most days I can just sort of pot around in the morning and come in at three o'clock if I just sit down I can sort of just focus when I choose to which is the most like life altering thing just being able to sit down and be like right I'm going to concentrate for an hour and then just doing it is like a crazy thing for me
0: (laughs) so you don't have to worry about kind of switching off your wi-fi or your social media are you quite good at kind of putting that stuff away
1: uh, I do like try and hide my phone from myself generally which is a shame because all of the good like Pomodoro apps are on your phone but I don't want to have my phone if I if it's in my eyesight I will just continually pick it up without thinking mm. about it but if I put it like out of eyesight and I've recently only recently like in the last two weeks have I discovered that you can put it on work mode so it doesn't buzz every time you get a WhatsApp so I don't have to like delete myself from every WhatsApp group <laughs> I get added to Um so that's really handy but yeah I think leaving your phone out of sight is good but yeah I, and I don't really use like Twitter or Instagram or anything on my computer so mm. that isn't really a problem
0: yeah I ask for selfish reasons really because I'm really bad at motivating myself and really bad at turning off distractions I literally have to set a timer and then write for a set amount em- set of em- time reward myself and say like when the time is done you can go on twitter for 10 minutes or you can watch a youtube video whatever it is um otherwise i'm terrible for just doing it anyway and ignoring my writing so yeah um <laughs> i wondered whether your now that you've kind of had a book written already do you think that your writing has changed do you think you're less of a kind of like Vibes writer and more thinking about kind of like plot and structure. Maybe you're thinking about how can because I'm guessing maybe you've had to already pitch this book to your agent or your editor. Have you become that sort of person or are you still a kind of like vibesy person?
1: Um, it is definitely a lot more structured than it was, but I, I really struggled with that, so I had sort of started planning the second book before the first book sold but I hadn't really written like a lot um, and then there was like a lot going on in my life so it sort of got put on the back burner for a while so me um, agent just sort of pitched it and she was like yeah it's still sort of crime there's like a stalker and there's a dead body uh, and the publisher were like yeah sounds great yeah we'll have that <laughs> um, and that the plot actually of the second book literally came to us in a dream and I woke up and I was like, "Oh, that's my next book." So I just sat and like feverishly wrote like a, a plot outline, emailed it to my agent without having sort of read it back. And I was just like, "This is my second book." Um, and she was like, "Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, write it." Yeah. Um, but the writing is the hard part, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean,
0: I mean, I'm just blown away by that. I think there would be. I mean, I I certainly feel like, oh my goodness, like that is that is one hell of a way to get an idea. I mean I'm sure there are people that have had book ideas in a dream but that just feels great that you kind of your 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 dream brain came up with this amazing kind of fully formed idea that's fantastic
1: yeah it had a structure and everything which was new for me um, <laughs> so this one hasn't been as bad I, I don't know I like you have meltdowns every so often don't you um, and one of them was that I just because this one's only sort of got two perspectives rather than eight I was like I, I don't know how to write that <laughs> um so I read the I haven't got it Usually it's on my desk the Save the cat writes a novel book and that is so helpful and also mm. so useful for like an ADHD brain I think because it splits the one big task down into lots of small tasks um so I've sort of unscriven it I've sort of set it up so that I've sort of got the one document split into all of the little bits out of the Save the Save the Cat book, so I can like just write random scenes as they sort of come into my brain, but I can write them in the right place, so they're vaguely in the right place in the novel when I come to sort of super glue it all together, which is what happens for me. Yeah, I don't write. I don't write in a line. Like I was I just write say, do you write scenes. completely.
0: You write completely out of order. You kind of write the the scenes that you fancy writing when you sit down.
1: Yeah, but again, with the ADHD drugs, I have actually been just, I was like, right, I'm just gonna put all of my scenes in the right place and then go back to the start and try and sort of write in a linear fashion, which I have actually stuck to for the last month or so. So that's very impressive as well, that everything about my brain is just less erratic these days, which is uh, really nice for writing a novel. (laughs) Mm,
0: Yeah, I can imagine. My last question for you, Rose, is: Can you give us a little tease about what you're working on next?
1: Yes. Well, i have been—I'm I've, under no instruction not to, so I think that I'm allowed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is about um, a woman who meets this other woman and just fully gets obsessed with her and worms her way into her life. Uh just with the the aim of making this other woman fall in love with her. Um, but it gets quite quite dark and quite scary in places because um, I don't want to write like a nice book because that feels boring. Um, yeah, and I've been learning a lot about limerence, which is sort of like obsessively falling in love with someone, almost like being obs- obsessed or addicted to a person. Um, which is really interesting, so it's sort of limerence, but a novel.
0: Cool. Well, that sounds really exciting. I'm definitely here for kind of the darkness of human nature, which I think you do really well. So I'm really looking forward to reading whatever you write next, Rose. I think um, I'm going to be a fan of yours now forever. So uh, you're stuck with me, I'm afraid. That was Rose Wilding talking about her psychological suspense novel, Speak of the Devil, which is out now and available to buy. Just to remind you, Jericho Writers are offering listeners of this podcast a very special discount. Use the code PODCAST15 for 15% off annual membership. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ